everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of the Stay at Home with Seven Run podcast, where each week we try to create a space for encouragement, empathy, and real talk in a world that needs just a little bit of all three. My name is John West. I'm the creative leader at the church at Seven Run. And joining me as always is our communications leader, Bonnie Mace. Hey, y'all. We hope that today you can walk away with something insightful or new that will inspire your faith walk in a real and practical way. And today we are happy to have our friend Ramiz Barnes back with us um, as we have promised. We introduced him um, to you guys back in episode nine Nine, and yeah so if you missed that be sure you go back and hear a little bit about who Ramiz is and why he's here and what he's passionate about and our commitment was to have him back about once a month and we're we're making it with this first one and kind of figuring out our own rhythm and grooves the three of us here um but yeah we're back today to talk a little bit more about the conversation of racism in America and how um, it impacts us and what we can do to be better advocates for anti-racism. So that's what we're up to today. Hey, Ramiz. Hey, what's going on? How are you guys doing? Good, man. Good. So I think we kind of picked up uh, last time that, you know, education was one thing that you kind of brought to the forefront in our last conversation mm-hmm. and just the, some of the disparities in education. And so we decided we'd, we'd kind of ride that train, hop on that train and see where it led us. And so We've got some uh, got some interesting data, interesting statistics that we're going to be throwing out in this one. But Ramiz, I think it would be cool just to start with your personal experience, just what school was like for you um, growing up. You know, kind of some of the experiences you had in school. Yeah, uh, you know, once again, I'm from Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, so the Charlotte Mecklenburg school system. I was a public school kid. I know that is not a popular thing nowadays, but it did fairly well for me. Um, <laughs> You know, through kindergarten, I guess, first, second, third grade, uh, it was fairly easy. I mean, you know, I guess I could spell my name, especially with a name like mine. I learned how to spell it pretty well. Uh, <laughs> drawing was never a good thing. You know, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. But uh, math came fairly easy. Reading was good as well. But uh, my life, I think, changed when I got to fourth grade. And in um, fourth grade, I had a black female teacher. Her name was uh, Dorothy Crane. And she saw something in me. She took me under her wing and um, she was good with my parents and encouraged my parents to you know, guide me. And what that led for me to do was to uh, enter a lottery and go to what they call back then traditional schools. So I ended up uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, I went to a school on the other side of town called Myers Park Traditional. And so I left my side of town, went about 30 minutes to, uh, let's say, where they had high cotton or the rich side of town. And um, it, it was different because I ended up going to school with uh, kids whose parents were bankers, lawyers. And I got to see how other people, you know, on my side of town, we were mostly blue collar. Even though my mom was a nurse and my, my pops, he drove a dump truck for a living that was his own business. You know, still going to another side of town and seeing how other people lived and how they thought it uh, gave me a different perspective. So I went there sixth grade for Myers Park and then seventh, eighth, ninth grade junior high. I went to Hawthorne uh, junior high. And so I stayed around kids who probably did not uh, come from where I came from, even though Hawthorne was in my neighborhood. Not a lot of kids from the neighborhood actually went to school. And even then, you know, I took French. So I learned French was great for me. I ended up uh, being able to go to Paris, Barcelona and Madrid. Nice. One what? summer. 
what? And uh, spent my birthday over in Paris. It's Paris, man. I got to eat a lot of uh, pastries. They even let me uh, taste a little sangria while I was over there. So it should have oh. said that. My mom never knew that part about it. Um, so, but anyway, you know, that, that, that part of life was good. Uh, then, you know, when I got to 10th grade, I ended up back in my neighborhood school and going to Garage High School, which was different in that uh, the kids that I had been away from, you know, for the past four years, I came back in contact with them. And it was amazing how we all changed over those four years. They grew uh, in different ways than I did. I, you know, not saying they didn't grow academically, but, uh, you know, during that junior high time period, it's a a time of a lot of change and you can easily be swayed and some of those kids got swayed i mean i grew up in a neighborhood that uh the two neighborhoods that bordered mine were fairly impoverished or rougher than what i grew up so say my my household value was a hundred thousand their household values were probably thirty thousand and so that changed a lot of education that they got because their schools were probably not as well funded yeah. as the ones that i went to and so, I mean, for those that are unaware, you know, property taxes play, play a great role in how your child is educated. So if the property mm-hmm. values on your side of town are lower than those on the opposite side of town, your kids are probably not going to be as well educated, won't have the best teachers and won't have as, the access to as many yeah. resources and things like that. So those are things that probably a lot of people are unaware of and they don't take into account. They just know that, hey the school in Severna Park is better than my school in Severn. And they don't, they might not realize what's behind the curtain and what's going on with why they're not getting the quality education that they get down in Severna Park versus what is uh, given to a child here in Severn. I mean, I think that kind of covers my life. Yeah, Ramiz, just thinking back to how you're talking about schools being maybe inherently different between Severn and Severna Park. Well, being in the area of where we are, we kind of know the housing prices are different. And um, I think something to start to be aware of with our educational system is that, you know, exactly what you're saying, that funding comes from property tax value. And so if you have an area with lower valued properties, then you're going to have a lower funded school. And to have that directly tied together seems like, well, that's not necessarily inherently racist, except for it is because we just have this bad history in our nation of redlining and safe zoning investment areas where we essentially have um, in our past worked hard to segregate neighborhoods and make sure that neighborhoods that are primarily um, filled with minority cultures are lower in value and white neighborhoods are higher in value. And so I think that's a basic understanding to recognize that the idea that our public school systems are fair or equally you know, funded. It's just not true. And there's a long history behind why that is. And so, you know, that's one thing just recently in our conversations and our nation Mm -hmm. has been a good reminder for me and something to say, okay, this is a way for me to inform my thinking about what policies I'm going to start to agree with or what I'd like to see change in our nation so that um, we don't have these gaps just you know like you're saying like on one side of the tracks versus the other um yeah so i mean with essentially having two different school systems 
a lot of times. So you have one for poor people and one for those that are more affluent. Uh, I mean, in poor neighborhoods, there has been a practice of what what you just said, Bonnie, of redlining. And redlining means that essentially you will draw a red line on a map around a certain neighborhood. And inside that box, uh, inside the red line, you don't make any loans. So people can't get mortgages. And of course, home ownership is the basis and the foundation of how people gain wealth. And so if you can't get a loan or a mortgage loan, then you can't start having wealth. And of course, if you can't get wealth, then your schools are poor. Then the kids don't get as good an education. And if they get a bad education, then they're not able to get uh, jobs or careers that make them more money. So it's, it's a much, very much a cyclical effect in which that we do not receive the proper education in certain neighborhoods due to the fact that people don't want to loan you money. And it's just essentially it's a, it is systemic racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it goes back generations and generations. And I think mm-hmm. that's something to just be aware you know, to start to be aware of is that our reality is not the reality that we have just constructed. It's it's generations of reality that shape our experience now. I mean, so you can take you, you can take into account that like uh, soldiers that came from World War Two, uh, they couldn't get their GI bills. They couldn't get the, the loan, the VA loans to get houses. So, you know, they were discriminated against. So once again, if home ownership is the foundation of of wealth, they uh-huh. can get those loans and they couldn't get educate a uh, college degree to get better paying jobs. So they were essentially cut off at the knees. Yeah. That was one of the things that I found was just the, there was a economic policy Institute study that showed basically like home ownership has remained unchanged as far as a percentage goes for uh, black Americans since 1968, when uh, 1968 civil rights bill was passed. And, you know, that's just, you know, again, all, all of that, you know, kind of keeps piling on to this, this whole, this whole topic we're talking about right now of access and, and can mm-hmm. you, you know, can you get even into a school, um, that will provide you with a quality education. Um, and, you know, so something I, I wanted to kind of, to pivot a little bit, um, remiss to something you'd sent us, which was some really great numbers for, for Anne Arundel County where, where we are. And, um, just even to start with this idea of, you know, achievement and, and kind of some systematic racism in the, in the sense that, you know, a lot of, a lot of black students can't even get the same opportunities when it comes to, um, when it comes to classes and things like that. I found a USA Today article, you know, with some real, real, you know, real stories about students not being able to gain access to AP classes because counselors, you know, simply because they were black, um, didn't think that they could achieve, uh, success in those classes. So, um, yeah, why don't we, if we can, cause I think it's pretty between the, between the achievement numbers and the discipline numbers in our County, it's pretty interesting, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what you found from is. Yeah. So, this uh, data came from the Department of Education and their, it's their civil rights data. And so in Anne Arundel County, uh, student enrollment is 20.5% black, but yet you would only find five and a half five and a half percent of those black kids that would be enrolled in Algebra 1 and 8. So essentially only a quarter of those kids are enrolled in Algebra 1. And that's the foundation of their math, you know, going mm-hmm. into high school. Yet you only have 
a quarter of you know the population taking algebra. So yeah. what's happening to the other three quarters? What are they taking? So you get, I think you get into these college readiness courses, Ramiz, you know, like calculus and physics, and it's it's still pretty stark there too. Yeah, like for calculus, there's only 6.8% African-American enrollment. Uh, physics, there's only 134 and in chemistry, 20.4. So essentially the calculus numbers are way down. The physics numbers get better in chemistry. It seems like everybody has to take chemistry. Problems. Yeah, it's it's just interesting. I mean, I think, you know, uh, this article is kind of eye opening for me. It, it's I will link it in the show notes as well. But it was from kind of the suburbs of Rochester, New York. And just talking about how, you know, this this one kid had, a, you know, they wouldn't let him take an AP course at his high school. So he went to the community college took the same course, came back with an A, showed him he could do it, and then they started letting him take other AP courses. And, you know, his his kind of his kind of summary was that of that was, you know, they didn't want me to fail because if a if a black student failed, it would pull down the, you know, potential funding um, you know, for for the school, um, based off of, you know, testing and things like that. And so it's just, it's kind of crazy, you know, what some of the motivations are, you know, to, you know, even to keep, um, kids from, from achieving, from, from continuing to, to seek, um, higher, a higher level of education. Yeah. It's insane that a lot of times, uh, kids are not encouraged to do more. Instead, they're encouraged to do less because funding's a lot, funding a lot of times is, are tied to, uh, you know, how kids achieve. So if they fail, then there could be less monies that come to the school via from federal grants or uh, state and local grants. Mm -hmm. So they rather you not even try so that they can get that money from those resources. I mean, as we look at the data a little bit more um, in Anne Arundel County, there seems to be only there's 19 percent that take the SAT Mm -hmm. and ACT. So pretty much it seems like most of the kids do take the SAT and ACT. But of course, if they're not taking uh, the college level courses, how well do they actually do on the SAT and ACT? So are they actually prepared when they come to take the SAT and ACT to actually achieve on? Yeah. And I think, I think then, you know, kind of, again, just to, to dig a little bit deeper into these numbers room is, you know, then we get into this whole idea of, of discipline and, and, um, you know, there's a there's a PDF that we'll we'll link in the show notes as well that Rumiz sent over to us, and it's it's just a really good uh, kind of step by step kind of walk through four different areas um, that we're kind of all hitting on right now: uh, access, achievement, uh, rights, and wellness, and just kind of four areas of focus for improving the educational system um, when it comes to race disparity, and I think. You know, we're at this part of rights at this point of, you know, students of color being disproportionately um, subject to, to discipline. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and it, sh- and it, sh- it shows up right, right here in our own county. And it, it's, it, I think out of all the numbers, this might be kind of the most eye-opening um, in the sense of what real impact it potentially has on the future of these kids. Yeah, so picking up there. Uh, once again, district enrollment is 20.5%, but in school suspensions, black kids make up 45.5% of in suspension. And then you jump to out of school suspensions, they make up 44% of out of school suspension. So mm-hmm. essentially you double the enrollment when you have these in school suspensions and out of school, which is insane 
as to how do you, how do you get there? And if those kids are suspended and put in in school or out of school yeah. suspensions, they end up falling behind in school. So yeah. you're not getting your classwork done because you're not there. Or if you're there, if you're there and you're in in, in school suspension, then you're doing mm-hmm. busy work. And so, of course, if you're just doing busy work and you're not doing your actual classwork, when you get back in the actual classroom, you're behind. You probably are a little bit mad at the teacher. Mm-hmm. You're probably frustrated that you got all this work to do, all this work to catch up on. And what does that lead to? That leads to a cyclical effect of constantly chasing behind or being frustrated and might probably get suspended again. So what, you know, why are the kids being, you know, suspended at such a high rate? What makes them get suspended at such a high rate? I mean, the thing is, is that a lot of times you um, teachers and students in this case don't come from the same backgrounds. There's not as many teachers that can relate probably to where their students come mm-hmm. from. You know, there probably are some implicit bias biases, as we spoke on before, that they don't believe that you can achieve uh, what right. the white counterparts can't. So you're constantly being looked at and you're being looked down upon because they don't think you can achieve. And if you walk in the door and you already got a couple strikes against you, you know, of your skin color and them not believing in you, how does that affect your cl- the classroom setting? And how does that affect what you're going to achieve in the classroom? So pretty much you're going to be, you're set up to fail. Yeah. And, and it goes even, you know, deeper beyond that. Some of what Pastor Drew has shared in the past and like what Reverend Charles Bilio, when he was on for, um, for our sermon a few weeks back, even addressed that there's just like this thick fog that's in the air or smoke in the room that is racism. And again, it goes back generationally um, and follows, follows black culture in America, that there is this thing called implied guilt like that, that comes along that as anti-racist advocates, we need to understand our, um, our likelihood because of our culture, because of our history to have this implied guilt bias towards kids, um, just because, or towards people, just because of the color of their skin. And that shows up in the numbers. I mean, it's hard to look at the numbers at Anne Arundel County and see these ISS rates and the out of school suspension rates and not say like, something's not right here. You know, like, I, I don't think, um, that there should be a naturally, two times what is, you know, done here for, or like what we have population wise to have in disciplinary action all the time. There's something in the air that we don't realize. Maybe we don't realize we're breathing. Maybe some people do realize that they're breathing, but some of us don't realize that we're breathing and we need the wake up call to say, maybe I read the room wrong from time to time. Um, And that goes for anybody in places of authority, like no matter what color your own skin is, um, recognizing the bias that you might bring to the situation where you have authority, um, I think is a really important step to start addressing some of that in our education system. Yeah, that's that's really good. I mean, I think it goes to to, you know, just another thing I'd found was, you know, just the idea that. um. And the evidence that, you know, black boys in particular are often Mm -hmm. assumed to be older than they are. And, you know, even the implications that has on on discipline, you know, and, you know, kind of assuming that, you know, a kid who's actually, you know, 10 is 14. You know, that's pretty significant. Um, And, you know, what that does in 
in even the in even the judgment of what um you know that kid is doing uh yeah so it's just you know there's a there's a lot here there's a, there's a lot there's a lot here as far as you know just kind of these there's stories behind the numbers here yeah oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely so my wife has two younger cousins and they are i want to say they're 16 they're twin boys and their heights are 66 six and 67 respectively so they're 66 67 mm-hmm. They're skinny as rails, but at the same point in time, <laughs> when you're in a classroom setting and you look up and you see these giants looking down upon okay. you, how do you feel? You know, can that right. not be intimidating to some people? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we joke, you know, we joke on them because they're so tall and they're so skinny. But at the same point in time, when you're in a classroom setting or you're out somewhere, what do you think of when you see these two guys coming at you that are six, six and six, seven? I mean, so and if we're talking about kids being looked at as older. Yeah, they their faces mm. are you know fairly young looking, yeah. but you know, it, anybody can take them the wrong way just based on their their height and their skin color. And also, um, you mm-hmm. know, based on what we're dealing with right now with COVID, one of the things, some of the things that have come to light are the uh, lack of internet mm-hmm. access that some yeah. households have, the lack yeah. of uh, digital devices, laptops, so that the kids can do the homework. I mean, I know I saw a report. A couple of weeks ago where the uh, state superintendent stated that there was a need of like 300,000 laptops. I mean, so how many kids during this time when they were supposed to be doing remote homework didn't really have a chance to do it? Or if they did, they had to share the uh, laptop with a sibling or possibly they might have to share a laptop with a parent who had work to do. You know, what about the Mm -hmm. pressures of that? And also, you know, speaking here in Anne Arundel County. Anne Arundel County gave out over a million meals to kids. So a lot of times you have kids that come to school, mm. not just for education. They come to school just to eat. And if you're hungry and you're sitting in a classroom at eight or nine o'clock in the morning, then you're not in a mind play, a mindset to learn because right. your stomach is growling and you might not have had a meal since lunch yesterday. Yeah. So a lot of things take place that you know need to be looked at as far as what's going on in somebody somebody's household that might affect why this child is not able to learn mm-hmm. or why this child is a, pro- a behavioral problem. But a lot of times these kids are criminalized, especially when you have um, school resource officers. And yeah, school resource officers yeah. are placed there to um, stop a Columbine type incident. But at the same point in time, they are more and more pulled into discipline issue. And for the most part, Police officers are not trained to right. de-escalate situations or to right. deal with kids yeah. and their emotional issues or emotional uh, times that they're going through. They're pretty much there to be be the law and order. That's what they're there for. They're there to keep the peace. So a lot of times, you know, you see the videos online of possibly a kid getting slammed or, you know, getting pushed up against the locker mm-hmm. by a school resource officer. I mean, it it does kind of make sense because that's not what they're trained to do. They're not trained to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, deescalate things. A lot of times they're supposed to, but a lot of times, especially in school type situations, they're not really deescalating anything. Right. They're, they're kind of making things yeah. worse. And I think that's something that, I mean, I know in, in Arundel County, you know, this is a, I think we're fortunate here in the sense that we do have a, a really, um, a really strong and really well-recognized, and I'm not, I'm not talking about specifically school resource, but just uh, kind of crisis response uh, unit in this county that we, I mean, we've worked with them as as a church 
um, a lot. And, you know, they're actually fairly well trained, but it brings about the point that like, that's rare, you know, like that, that the, the existence of that is rare. Um, and so just that need, especially, especially now, I mean, I feel like with just kind of in some ways, like the fragility of culture, you know, like in the sense of, you know, we're going through a coronavirus, we're going through, you know, racial tension and, and there's just a, there's a lot of mental strain on people right now. And, you know, economic tension on top of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and what's really needed, you know, what's really needed is, is, is a, a crisis response team, not, you know, not a, not a more, you know, maybe, you know, kind of what you're referring to, uh, Ramez is maybe, you know, more traditionally trained. Um, and, you know, can we take that same approach with schools, which I think kind of brings around the question to Ramez, you know, of some of the things that, that we can do, you know, uh, you know, and, and one thing that comes to mind that you've mentioned before is just mentorship. And so if you just want to, can you talk a little bit about kind of your mentorship journey and, and maybe how that might be a good way to kind of, you know, even if you're not a teacher, you know, how do you, how do you kind of help influence these, these kids that need, that really need, you know, some, some love and, and attention and some encouragement? Uh, yeah. So about 10 years ago, when I've, I've been in the county now for 15 years, uh, probably the first four or five years I was here in Anne Arundel County, I did mentor. I mentored at a local elementary school. And let me say that sitting on the other side, you do gain a lot more respect for teachers principals, mm-hmm. guidance counselors, social workers sure. for yeah. all of the issues and things that they have to deal with on a daily basis. I mean, I know that mm-hmm. they were happy to see me because I was a black male and there are definitely not enough black males who mentor, teach, whatever the case may be, because those numbers uh, as far as a school system or those that volunteer are minuscule. And But to be there for uh, the kids that I, I was there for, it did mm-hmm. do me a lot of good. And it also opened my eyes to some of the ills of, of the community. And, um, you know, mentorship is definitely something we can we can do to help and assist that will uh, give back. It will uplift the community most definitely, because that way, you know, these kids, they see somebody on a regular basis and they don't want it. You don't want anything from them except for them to achieve better, except you want them to you want to be you want to provide encouragement. That is what you want. To do. You don't want anything else from them. You just want to. Hey, man, how's your day going? You know, let them know that. Hey, yeah, you know, yeah, you might have done bad on that test, but you can do better next time. You know, it's not. You know, it's not all doom and gloom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if they like to play basketball, you can talk to them about you know the NBA or college basketball. So you find those commonalities mm-hmm. and you relate to the kid. No, that's really good. I I think that. Our generation, and by our, I'm a millennial. Um, <laughs> uh, but I think, I think in general, probably like Gen X, millennial, Gen Z, um, have unfortunately not experienced the level of mentorship that other. It's seemingly that other generations have received, um, and that's just my experience of of hearing people who are. Old, are older than me talk about mentorship in a way that mm-hmm. I've I've not had the chance to experience. And so to me, if we can kind of pass that on to the next generation, I feel like that's that's a great, great step towards um just helping the next generation be be better off than where we are. So yeah. 
Ramiz, can you talk about whenever schools do go back in session, whenever that is, <laughs> um, how did you get started doing that? Like what steps did you yeah, take to get involved as a, as a mentor in a local school? Uh, when I did mentorship, essentially I walked in off the street. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I looked around the, my neighborhood and I kind of assessed things and I, you know, I could see that there was a need probably. And I just essentially walked in. They ended up doing a, uh, an orientation or a training session around Columbus day. And I went to that. And of course, you know, before you go into schools, you have to get a background check and everything like that. Um, so that was done. And, you know, once everything cleared, I was able to uh, mm -hmm. mentor. I even uh, spent some time at uh, Preserve Arlington Echo. Mm -hmm. I've been at Arlington Echo several times with school kids, um, spending the night sometimes, being out in a, a canoe or, you know, doing <laughs> uh, different things down at Arlington Echo. So I, I've experienced those things. Like I said, it's, it's been a long time since I've mentored, but, you know, I still can recall quite a few things about um, some of the kids, you know, granted they're, they're all adults now, but at the same point in time, it was quite enlightening for me. And I'm pretty sure that mm -hmm. I gave to them and, and tried my best to enrich their lives. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I've, I might, I may have stumbled upon a link here. So we'll, we'll put a link, uh, in the show notes too, for, if you are in Anne Arundel County, um, it looks like there's some, some, uh, some opportunities to, to maybe, uh, at least reach out to them if you're interested in in doing some mentorship, and so um, I'll, we'll put that in there. But yeah, I think I think that's awesome. That's just an awesome opportunity, I think, for people to to speak into some kids' lives in ways that really pushes back against a lot of the a lot of the systematic stuff that uh, otherwise would hold them hold them back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it automatically addresses some of the disciplinary issues because you're in there offering grace and relationship, um, you know, which is something that's missing a lot when, when there's behavioral issues with kids, no matter what their age or race or background. And then, um, yeah, just to believe big in a kid, that's a seven run value, you know, to believe yeah. big. So I love that that's an opportunity. You don't have to wait around for policy change. You don't have to wait around for the right money. You just, you can go and offer who God has made you to be to a kid that God has designed, um, uniquely and just believe big for them. I just, I think that's awesome. But what are you guys thinking are some other things, other steps that we can take to just start to one, be aware of this, but then to take some steps towards, um, helping to correct some of the imbalance that's in our public school system as Christ followers, as citizens, as people who love children, because we're commanded to do that through scripture. Um, what are some thoughts you guys have on that outside of mentorship is obviously a huge one. I mean, um, you could uh, try to, well, when schools get back in, in session, of course, uh, you could try to discourage uh, zero tolerance policies that sometimes uh, adversely affect kids of color. We can, you know, right. go, you know, those need to be probably... I don't want to, I, I want to say done away with because kids get into trouble for things that are sometimes very minuscule mm -hmm. and they're blown up and you end up getting a, a suspension or, or an expulsion over something that really was minor in the first place. But because of the policy that is in place, this you get the hammer. So those those type of things. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, 
yeah, you have school resource officers in schools, but you can also get more guidance counselors and social workers because a lot of the, the issues that are going on in school are more social. They're not of a, a criminal nature. They're societal ills. They're mm-hmm. you know people that are struggling to pay their light bill. You got parents who are working and the kids are at home by themselves or they're being taken care of by an older sibling. So maybe if you could figure out a way to assist that parent to mm-hmm. find a better job that doesn't have them working a night shift or get them better training right. so that they can be home with their kids. Yeah, those are good. I, I think too, you know, just some, um, you know, even just talking with teachers, you know, I think teachers are fairly open to hearing from parents. Um, that's been our experience so far uh, in kindergarten. <laughs> so we're not, <laughs> we're not that deep into it. But Yay I, I, for that teacher. <laughs> yeah, I no, I think, you know, just even talking about, you know, some things that you see or notice and, or even just, you know, uh, what you desire for your child. Um, you know, I, I think I remember, you know, uh, back towards the beginning of this school year when Elliot had just started school, um, you know, there was there was an interesting situation in the sense that, you know, one of the kids in the class uh, was, you know, English as a second language and really, really didn't know how to communicate very well. And it kind of gave the teacher an opportunity to say, you know, hey, we're going to help him. You know, we're going to help him learn. And we're going to help him learn how to communicate with us. We're going to help you how to learn how to communicate with him. Um, so, you know, Elliot, Elliot started coming home speaking some Spanish words, you know, and we're like, oh, okay, cool. That's awesome. You know, like, so, cause it wasn't just a, we're going to help him learn English. It was, we're going to help you learn some words that you can use with him um, so that he feels more comfortable, awesome. um, which I thought was really cool. And so, you know, I think even things like that, where, you know, if you start to notice some things, you know, how can you encourage, you know, your kid's teacher um, to take a vested interest? Um, and I'm not saying that some, yeah, I'm not saying that teachers don't, um, but there are some that I think can be encouraged for sure to to take, you know, more of a vested interest. And you as a parent don't have to be a, a bystander. I think you can be mm-hmm. a vocal proponent, um, not only for your child, but for other children that are in mm-hmm. the classroom. Because, you know, it's, again, it's another thing, you know, that we kind of came to realize is, you know, there there were a significant number of children in his class who, um, you know, for whatever reason, did not have a parent that was as involved. And, you know, again, like Ramiz, like you were saying, it may be, it may be a job issue. It may be, um, you know, it may be a housing issue. It may be a financial issue that causes them to not be as involved, but how can you, how can you encourage even your kid to give that child grace, you know, and, and say, we, you know, we don't know what's happening right now. How can we, how can we show them love? How can we be kind to them? You know, things like that. And then, and then also just recognizing like you as a, as a parent can, can offer some resources as well. Um, you know, I think, you know, Bonnie, you, you had mentioned at some point too, you know, even buses and backpacks program that we have at Severn mm-hmm. Run and things like that, you know, offering some of these resources, I think, you know, just so even parents or, or teachers or guidance counselors know that they're out there. Um, Cause there may be a yeah. knowledge gap. Yeah. And there's another resource that I will send to John for our notes of, of just a um, organization I've started following recently. And they have basically a template for advocacy in your school district. And it's basically like this pre-written letter that John sort of takes head on, takes it to the next level of what you're saying of like, 
I want the administration and the leaders of my school to be aware that there are gaps in education that affect people adversely. And I want you guys to be aware of your own implicit bias. And I want you guys to be um, working towards not passively, you know, not passively dealing with these things, but, but kind of tackling them head on. It was really, it's a really well-worded letter. We'll put it in there. Like if you're feeling brave and want to send that over to your principal to just say like, Hey, I want every kid to be treated fairly, to be advocated for, to be offered the same opportunities. And like, here's what holds you back from doing that. You need to be aware. Um, it's a really well-worded template that I mean, seems worth it to at least throw out there and um, right. awareness becomes some of the first steps for people sometimes. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I mean, it, it takes a village. I mean, we have to realize that, mm-hmm. you know, we're not in this alone. That's you know, great. There are, you know, there are some parents all around us. I mean, you know, we have a middle schooler here and, you know, there are some mornings that mm-hmm. the kids are out there trying to catch the bus going to Brooklyn Park that, it's cold as I don't know what out there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's there have been times I've been like, hey, just get in the truck mm-hmm. so that you don't have to stand out here in the cold. You know, or if the bus is missed, we take the kids to school. I mean, and you you know, they may not, you know, the yeah. kids know you and they get to know you and they get they build a relationship yeah. with. You. So sometimes it's very simple. And, and for the most part, a lot of times the mothers, you know, they, they end up having, you know, uh, group text amongst themselves and they stay informed that way. So there are avenues, you know, if you just open yourself up to, you know, the world, then you can assist and guide and help, you know, raise up others. That's good. Yeah, for sure. And just to kind of quickly run through some of the things at Severn Run that we do, like holistic missions is part of our uh, part of our thing, right? It's part of our call of who we are. So like John mentioned, buses and backpacks, that's going to get back started in the school year. And we are providing Lots. I should have had the number, but we are basically in partnership with two elementary schools right now and sending home backpacks full of food for kids who um, deal with the food scarcity issue that we talked about earlier. Um, We send home food to cover their entire weekend. And the goal is to cover their entire family the entire weekend. So that's what buses and backpacks says. It's a great, great thing. Um, You guys will see announcements about it when we get started rolling with that again. Um, Usually at the beginning of the school year, we do a school support apply drive with one of our small small groups um they've been told this year by the county that because of coronavirus we can't do that um kind of an official way but just like remiss is saying like we don't have to always wait for the official ways to do things so if you know of kids who are missing school supplies maybe buy extra um get your kid to bring extra whatever the case might be and just support you know your schools in that way um the last thing this isn't really a seven run program but i wanted to throw out there so people could be aware is that i saw this phenomenon last year where people were hunting down teacher Amazon wish list because a lot of times teachers have to personally supply the supplies for their for their classroom, yeah. especially in some of these lower funded 
schools. And so they have started putting together basically Amazon wish lists of supplies that they want for their classrooms. So keep an eye out as school gets back in session for these databases of teacher wish lists and maybe participate in Amazoning them some of what they need. Um, you know, maybe that's something we'll work on trying to make a little more official. I'm not sure, but that's something you can just keep your eye out for on the internet just to kind of help, again, equip students so that the achievement gap that we are talking about, we, we can narrow that as Christ followers. We can narrow that um, in our communities before there's huge systemic change. We can start advocating on our own. Yeah, that's good. That's good. For me, uh, this has just been, it's been a really good conversation. I think, you know, we could obviously go a million different directions and go deeper. Um, but any anything else that you uh, you want to leave us with before we uh, we sign off? I mean, like I said before, I think it definitely takes a village, and we need to be mindful, you know, of those around us. We never know what's going on inside somebody's four walls. To uh, always give grace and offer a hand to the, to anyone that we can uh, mm. raise them up. That's a that's a good last word. We're gonna we're gonna end it with that one. <laughs> so um, no, hey, we're gonna we'll be back with Ramiz uh, in about you know about a month's time. Uh, we're working on a couple things uh, behind the scenes here, and so uh, we just hope to continue to have some really rich conversations uh, just around around race in America. And so uh, we will have a whole bunch of links in the show notes. We 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 hit a lot of stuff today, um, yeah. so there will be. There will be quite a few links that you could spend, uh, I'm sure, most of the week, the rest of the week, uh, checking stuff out. So um, they'll look for all those uh, links in the show notes. And of course, you know, feel free to share this uh, on any of your social platforms. Uh, We hope that this just continues the conversation. And so um, other than that, feel free to uh, subscribe, give us a rating. Uh, Ratings always help other people to see the podcast. So we'd love if you do that. So yeah, until next time, though, go out there, love well, live Jesus, believe big and uh, make lots of bloopers. We'll see you next time. My name is John West. I'm the creative leader at the set. Oh, nope. You were so close. At the Severn Run. Okay. At the Severn Run. (laughs) Uh, We would love if you'd go out there and love well, live Jesus and believe big and make lots of bloopers. And that was terrible. So I'm going to do that again. So so here goes take number two on, on on that. Technology does not want us to do this podcast, y'all.